I'd like for you to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts, and I want to read beginning at verse 13, several verses of Scripture. From the book of Acts, chapter 13. Now as they, that is the Sanhedrin, observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were marveling and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they'd ordered them to go outside of the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to any man in his name, in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And when they threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man was more than 40 years old whom, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. I want to skip now to verse 29. And now, Lord, these, these apostles now are praying... And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence, while thou dost extend thy hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were filled, all filled, with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. In the pastor's class, we're studying the book of Acts on Sunday morning, and, and it's been exciting for us to remind ourselves of the tremendous growth and advance of this church that burst on the scene at Pentecost, and the tremendous impact that it had upon its culture and environment and the philosophy and thought life of that first century world. It just impacted that world profoundly. And to study about that was to raise a question in class one day. The question was this, what difference does the modern church make in the 20th century to its culture and its philosophy? Somebody suggested that we need to define what we mean by church. And there is, of course, the invisible church 
that is made up of all believers of every nation and denomination who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and who are a part of this larger group called the church. And then there is the church that is identifiable that meets on a certain location, at a certain location, you can identify with, you can recognize and, and see. Now, for the want of the, exp the uh, examination this morning, I want us to think about the local church or your church, whether it meets on this corner or someone else's. What difference does your church make upon its culture and upon its environment and community? I mean, does it impact its community profoundly? And what difference does the gospel or the message your church preaches have on the people who are a part of that congregation? Uh, let's just take a test this morning. We got one question as multiple choice. How does the community view your church? A, they hate it. B, they fear it. C, they admire it. Four, they ignore it. Now, if you've chosen D, you've probably indicted your church with its worst indictment. It probably is better to be hated than to be ignored. Now, I'm not sure exactly, completely, how that first century viewed that church, that first century church that exploded at Pentecost. I guess it's every historian's opinion, but I am convinced that that first century world could not ignore the church. It profoundly affected the world both politically and theologically, and what it taught and what it stood for and what it was was something that they could not ignore. But that might be the best choice for the modern church. When 70% of the populace of Bryan County, between 70 and 80%, claim no commitment and no devotion to any church of any kind, I think we could safely say that most people pass by the modern church and at best admire it occasionally, but most of the time give it a kind of a shrug indifferently. Now I'm not here this morning to pick on the church. What I am here to do is to pick out those things that made this church militant and caused it to impact its culture and philosophy and thought with a profound found impact. I want us to pick those things out. First of all, in order for a church to be more than admired and ignored, it must be gripped by an irresistible compulsion. Now one is struck immediately by the tremendous motivation of these men, these apostles of Christ. They were told in verse 18, you must not speak this name again. But in verse 20 they said, we can't keep from speaking this name. 
for there was something inside of them that made it impossible to do otherwise. They were gripped by an irresistible compulsion. And that compulsion stemmed from two sources. It stemmed from a deep conviction. Now this is the conviction they had. They had walked with Jesus and they had heard Him teach. He spoke as no other man. They had marveled at His works and they had pinned their hopes on the Nazarene. And they saw all of their world come crashing down in the darkness of Calvary. And they remembered in their sorrow-benumbed minds how they had tried to put all the pieces together and make some sense out of His death. And then all of a sudden something happened that changed everything. At first they stood in bewilderment looking into an empty tomb and then all of a sudden they were aware of a presence with them, the presence of the Lord Himself and they understood and were gripped by this deep conviction that this Christ who has, was crucified was alive and fundamentally available to them. And they were saying to these men, it would be easier to tell the sun to stop shining and the ocean to be still than to tell us to be silent of such a thing. I'm not sure that we're gripped by that same deep conviction. I'm not really sure that when we leave these places where we worship on Sunday morning, that we do so with an awareness. I'm not sure that when we begin our work day tomorrow, wherever we are in our various world spheres, that we are profoundly conscious of the fact that Christ is alive and among us. That's the difference. I remember the first time we took the youth musical Celebrate Life on a tour with our young people. It's the best youth musical, in my opinion, that's ever been written. And when I was pastoring in West Texas, we took a group of young people up to South Dakota and we did Celebrate Life in those villages and towns in South Dakota. And many of them had no evangelical witness at all. And we'd go into storefronts and school buildings and sometimes we'd just be out in the parks and these kids would sing Celebrate Life. You've heard that musical. If you haven't, you don't have the slightest clue what I'm talking about, but I'll help you after the service. It's this tremendous musical about the life and death of Jesus. And, and when we first start singing that in every one of those services, I didn't sing, so I just kind of standing in the crowd, you know, observing, and, and everything just starts getting quiet. And, and then they take Jesus out to crucify him, and that marvelous song, Handle Him Gently. And there's a hush comes over. And then all of a sudden, when the crescendo of that thing is reached, and those kids start running around shouting, He is alive, He is alive, He is alive. And they start singing, He is alive. And He shows me the way. And He gives me joy to begin every day. He is alive and so I celebrate. And this is the story that I must relate. He is alive and I love Him. I am alive and He loves me. And there's just a generation of excitement that goes through the crowd. And I just watched as there was this odd silence would come over every group and they would just kind of sit there gripped by the word, the thought that Jesus Christ was alive. Now remember that this opposition that came on this day here in this text 
was from the Sadducees who denied supernatural things. They denied miracles and the resurrection and they denied angels and ministering spirits. But these men were convinced of the reality of the unseen and they believed that everything they were doing was under the power of the Holy Spirit and the fundamental message they preached was that Jesus Christ was alive. They were gripped by it. Second, uh, resource from which this compulsion stemmed was from a divine command. Now, in the first part of the book of Acts, Jesus has told these apostles, you shall be my witnesses. Now, they'd come to these men and these Sadducees said, you shall not be his witnesses. You shall be my witnesses. You shall not be my wit his witnesses. Now, well, Peter stood up and he said, now, whether it's right for us to hearken to God or to you, you judge that. But as far as we're concerned, we have no choice. We have been told to witness and we don't have a choice. If Jesus Christ is alive and transcendently sovereign and he gives a command, we don't have a choice whether or not we do it. We must obey now, there are four implications of that in the, for this church today. Listen carefully. It means, first of all, that witnessing or soul winning or missions or whatever label you want to put on it, that is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ, confronting the unbelieving world with the gospel of Jesus Christ is what we must do all the time. It is the first priority of the church. And wherever you are, whatever you are, wherever, whatever you're doing tomorrow and the next day, it's what you must be doing, that is, confronting your world with Christ. Secondly, this enterprise must be engaged in and involved in by the people as much as the preacher. Let me tell you something. This command was not given to a pastor, to a clergyman, as a part of his job description. It was given to the church as a part of your job description. Third, to engage in this enterprise, the church will engage in this enterprise to the degree it sees its ministers engage in it. And fourth, we must do this whether we do anything else or not. Now, the world may admire what we're doing at First Baptist Church. They may think, man, they got a lot of good stuff going on down there. But whether we do anything else or not, we must do that. We must confront this community with the good news of Jesus Christ, whether we want to or not, whether we feel like it or not, whether it's successful or not. We have no choice. In the South Pacific is a little island called Iwo Jima. The surface of that island is equivalent to the surface of the moon. It's volcanic ash. Hardly anything will grow there. And yet 21,000 men gave their lives for that island in the war with Japan. 21,000 men gave their lives for Iwo Jima, not because of the value of the property or because they felt like it or wanted to, because of courage or lack of it. They took that island because they were told to. Now these apostles were gripped by an irresistible compulsion. That's why they impacted their world. Secondly, 
In order to impact the world, we must, that is, every one of us, must present to the world irrefutable evidence of what we preach. Now let's go back to these apostles. They were up there telling that Jesus Christ died and rose again and that He was supremely sovereign and that in Him was forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Weighty claims indeed. Is there any proof of these supernatural claims that they could present? The answer is of course. The proof was the healed man. They just brought this healed man in who had been out in front of the temple for 40 years, a cripple, and they just set him in the midst of these miracle deniers and they said, take a look for yourself for there's a man who stands before you who is the living proof of a miracle. And verse 14 said, and when they saw the man healed, they could say nothing against it. Irrefutable evidence. Now let me ask you a question. Listen carefully to the question. Are you presenting to the world a life that is irrefutable proof of a divine power? Now they, that is, the unbelieving world can deny your message. Is there anything about your life that silences that denial? Is there anything about your life that is irrefutable proof of a divine supernatural presence and power? Do you know why the church is having a difficult time impacting its world? You know why the world ignores the church? I don't have many answers, but I have an answer to that question. It's this. The world is not seeing very much evidence that what we preach can be substantiated. You see, the church must not only proclaim the message, the church must present evidence of which she proclaims. And that evidence is a healed man. Now the word is whole there. It means to be completely changed in the basic nature and the, and the church must not only preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, must, but must present to the world changed people as proof of what they preach. The son of our dear friends in Tulia, Texas, broke his leg playing football when he was about 14. It was a cruel break about the ankle. And, and they told him, they said, now when the swelling goes down, we're going to have to do some orthopedic surgery there. And, and it's a very delicate operation. And he could lose the growth in that ankle so that one leg would be shorter than the other. And of course they were distressed and upset about it. And they, they were not sure, you know, they wanted to get the very best surgeon they could find. Well, this friend of mine was... You know, he, he farmed a whole bunch, a lot of land out in West Texas, so he had a guy working for him. This guy came up to him and he said, I want to recommend my doctor. He said, he's just the very best. He's an orthopedic surgeon in, in Lubbock, Texas. I want to recommend him. He said, he just put on, he just gave this great testimony to, 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 my, to, the, to this doctor, just urging me to take my son to see his doctor. He said, while he was giving this 
urgent witness, I was looking at a man whose right leg was two inches shorter than his left one. And he said, I couldn't get too excited about taking my son to his doctor because he, he didn't have that much evidence that there was any success in that. See, now let me tell you something. You can give the most urgent, intense, sincere witness to the saving power of Jesus Christ, but if the man is looking at you unchanged, that witness is going to fall on deaf ears. I mean, if he can't see some evidence that this Christ you present has the power to change one's basic nature, he's not going to get too excited about your Lord. And this proof is nurtured by one's constant companionship with Christ. They said, the scripture says that they took notice that they'd been with Jesus. In other words, they said, this, these guys have run around with Jesus Christ so long and so often. They've been with him so many times and so much. They even look like him. They talk like him. They act like him. They think like him. If you're going to give him a name, give him his name. I'm told by astronomers that well, no astronomer told me, but astronomer told somebody, and I read it, that you could, take a, you could take a sensitive photographic plate and place it so that it catches the light of a distant star and give it a motion that's a, like the apparent motion of the heavens and keep it lying there for days and months and years, and the image of a distant star will be stamped on that photographic plate that the star you can't even see with a telescope will be stamped on that photographic plate because of its constant contact with the light. Now what happened here in this church was these men just lived and breathed with Jesus Christ to the point they became just like Him, irrefutable evidence. And I'm convinced that, that, that the character of the Christian has more influence on the world than anything else. The greatest agent for presenting the gospel is not my sermon, but your life. And for every one person that picks up a track that you've left lying behind in the restaurant or picks up a Bible that you've left placed somewhere, for every one person that opens that Bible or track up and discovers what a Christian is, there are a hundred who look at you and me and decide what a Christian is or is not. And I've interviewed hundreds of people literally in the years of my ministry and I've asked them, what influenced you to embrace in faith Jesus Christ? And without exception, they'll name somebody whose life influenced them. Irrefutable evidence. One last thought, please. This church was gripped by an irresistible compulsion, presented irrefutable evidence this is the most important perhaps, and relied on an inexhaustible power. Now go back to the scene. Here are 70 men in the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jewish Kingdom, sitting cross-legged in a semicircle, and before them stands two disciples, two apostles, and a healed man. And get the contrast 
There is wealth on one hand and poverty on another. There is intellectual um, acumen on one hand. There is no formal training on the other hand. There is the political and theological power on one hand, and there are these men who just been walking around with a Nazarene on the other hand. Now, how in the world can these men stand that opposition? The answer is, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They had relied upon an inexhaustible power. They were resting under the power of God upon their life. God was upon them. And His power was inexhaustible. Now, listen carefully. When a common man is filled with the Holy Spirit, when a common man has the power of God upon him, he becomes very uncommon immediately. And I live by this conviction that a church will not impact significantly and eternally anything or anybody unless God's power is upon that church. And so much of what we do is done from our energy and our charisma and our resources. Carl Bates said, if the Holy Spirit were to suddenly withdraw Himself out of the church, 90% of what we do we'd keep on doing and never miss Him. You know what He meant? He meant that 90%, are you listening? 90% of what He do, His assessment was, 90% of what we do in the church, we do in our energy and by our resources. And there's no power to that. There's no life changing to that. There's no inexhaustible energy in that. These men somehow laid hold upon a power that was inexhaustible. And that power came through the Holy Spirit of God. I've mentioned R.T. Kendall. He's the pastor of the Westminster Chapel over in uh, London, the most prestigious church in London. I said last week it. They're trying to run R.T. Kendall off over there, and that's the truth. A graduate of Oxford University. He's a, tech, he's a Floridian. He's an American. He went over there to study for his doctorate at Oxford University and was pastoring at a little Baptist church, ran 20 in Sunday school, and they came out and asked him to be the pastor of Westminster Chapel. It's one of the most remarkable stories in modern church history in England. Well, anyway, a few, a few months ago, uh, Arthur Blessed came to London. He's the guy that carries the cross around all the time, you know. Have you ever heard Arthur Blessed, Blessed preach? I'll tell you what, he shakes people to their toes. And he asked R.T. Kendall if he could preach in Westminster Chapel. Now, they don't have invitations in Westminster Chapel. They never have an invitation. But he told him, he said, yeah, you can preach here on Sunday night. And he said, well, you let me be what I am? He said, you bet. You preach what God tells you to preach. You do what God tells you to do. He said, well, I'm going to give an invitation. He said, give an invitation. And when he preached there that first night, it shook Westminster. I never heard anything like it. 
And he preached for six consecutive Sunday nights at Westminster Chapel and literally just profoundly changed that church. Well, they were trying to run R.T. Kendall off because of it. And they started having, the Sunday I was in London, there were 25 adults saved in Westminster Chapel. It's amazing what's happening over there now. And, and, and he started E.E., can you believe that? In an old, stayed dead, cold, formal church in that London, he started E.E. And if you go into London on Saturdays, R.T. Kendall will be on the streets witnessing. And they gather down there on Saturday morning, and all the people come and, that are a part of it, and they have training classes, and then they scatter out all over the city of London witnessing to the, the, the riffraff that you know, lives, lives on the streets. Well, R.T. Kendall's wife thought he'd lost his mind. She thought, what is my husband, what's happening to him? She thought he'd gone crazy. And she wouldn't go out witnessing. She, wouldn't, she didn't think it was right to do that. If God wants to save people, they'll come to church and get saved. And then I'll, all this high pressure stuff, emotionalism. One day she came to her husband and she said, I think I need to go witnessing today. He said, well, come on. So they went down to Westminster Chapel and she went through a little training session. Then she started out. She went to St. James Park. St. James Park is a big, if you've been to London, it's, it's, it's the big park that stretches out in front of Buckingham Palace, the, the, the home of the Queen. And every day there are hundreds of people out on that St. James Park. And, and most of them are hippies, young people. And she got out there on St. James Park and the first guy she walked up to was a long-haired hippie had hair about down to his waist, and he had a T-shirt, had Che Guevara's picture on it, that radical, revolutionary person. And she walked up to him and asked him this question. She said, do you know, sir, if you were to die tonight, you'd go to heaven? And his eyes filled with tears. And he said, lady, I don't know who you are, but he said, I've just come from that chapel. He pointed to an Anglican church across St. James Park, a cathedral. He said, I have just come out of that. And he said, I've been over there and, and I was praying in that chapel. It, God, if you're really God, let somebody tell me about you today. And he said, I want you to tell me how, what it's about. He, she said, I don't, he said, I, I had never witnessed anybody. He said, I, I, he said, come on, I'll take you to the pastor. He said, no, now watch this. He said, I've got to catch a train in 30 minutes. I've got 30, I mean, 30 minutes between this man's eternal death and salvation. And, and, and she was under the power of the Holy Spirit. And she said, I, and, and, and R.T. Kendall said, my wife just stumbled through as best she could telling him how to become a Christian and he was saved, disappeared, and was gone. Now the point of that story is this, that when a church is gripped by a, an irresistible compulsion, and presents an irrefutable evidence and relies upon inexhaustible power, even the devils are subject unto us. Now what these men were praying was this. They were saying, Lord, we want to be available and at your disposal 
In other words, they were saying, we want you to anoint us with your presence and power and we'll do anything you tell us to do. It's easy to pray, Lord, we need money, but I can't give. Lord, we need, our children need to be taught, but I can't teach. Lord, people need to be saved, but I can't witness. It's easy to pray that and nothing's gonna happen as long as we pray that. But when this church is on its knees and gripped with an intense conviction and praying from its heart, Lord, here I am. I don't know how to do it, what to do, but I'm at your disposal. Anoint me. I tell you what, there is no kingdom that can withstand the assault of that. Is there an amen? Is one in this place at all? Inexhaustible power. And so Duncan Campbell and his revivals in the New Hebrides said that he is preaching in this little church. Nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. And they left that church that night and some of the people of that congregation were concerned. They went to this man's house and they fell on their faces before God and they said, now Lord, we, nothing's happening. No evidence of your presence. He said there was a man in that group, just a layman. He prayed for one flat hour, he said. He said when he prayed for an hour, he just shifted into high gear and he really started praying. And he was pouring out his heart to God in the second hour of his prayer. And he said, all of a sudden he said, Duncan Campbell, I've heard him on tape. He's priest at Southwestern Seminary. He said, we felt a shaking in this little house. He said it was as if an earthquake. We, we felt an actual moving of the house on its foundation. And about that time, a man burst into our meeting crying, Sir, is there anyone here who can tell me how to know the Lord? And he said, when we stepped outside that house, we saw lights coming on in every house in the village and people pouring out the doors, coming to the church to find the Lord. Oh, God, do it again. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that there'll be those of us who will be gripped by an irresistible compulsion to present an irrefutable witness to the world relying upon inexhaustible resources. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose name I pray, there are three invitations this morning. Hear me carefully. The first invitation is for you to claim for yourself the provision of eternal life, forgiveness of sin that was accomplished through his death. To trust Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation. Invitation two is to come this morning to be a part of a local congregation of believers. Now we're not perfect, and we're certainly not all that God has, 
nor are we the best he has. But I sense that there are some in this congregation who long to be used of God. I spoke at the BSU Thursday night and heard one of those young people praying this prayer just to me, just to God in my presence. Oh, Jesus, break me. Break me, dear Jesus, so that I can be everything you need me to be. There might be some who need to come and join a church like that. And there might be some this morning who need to come to say, I need to be that witness, irrefutably witnessing to the power of God's transforming grace. I need rededication of my life to prayer and to, to witness and to work and to pray and to, to devotion. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.